Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. I have a two couple, three, two other couples to come up. Sarah Lee's going to come up too. We're going to do something really fun this morning. I rarely have, um, oops, I rarely have, I'm going to put this actually here, right here. This can be our finish line. We're going to do a three-legged race. And uh, I, I normally just jump right in with a verbal, we're going to start on that end. Actually, that's a wider end, isn't it? Let's start on this end. Sorry, I, I'm just thinking, yeah, start over here. Somebody make sure to step on that. Uh, who has any, uh, did you sign the waiver yet? Okay, sweet. No. Um, the scissors will be the finish line because you're going to have to cut yourself out of zip ties. Just don't go over, there's red tape, there's stairs over there, don't go over the edge. So here's how we're going to, one goes around your ankle, the other goes around the other ankle, and they should collect together that you see like that so can can I give you guys there we go it's gonna hurt yeah that's what they instead of like uh, metal ones now I think the police use like zip ties so I don't know how this is gonna work so you get you get you take you get a line and I'll get a pole here we go oh you want me to okay we're zip tying our legs together okay so um yeah. Oh, here, let's do it this way. Let's do this. This is a part of the, the learning experience. Here. All right, here. Get you, you do your, hey, you do your, no, that's mine. You do, there we go. Oh, how my, my leg's fat. That's not funny. Fat leg, fat leg. <laughs> okay. Have you ever done a three-legged? How many of you have done a three-legged race before? Well, that's it. A couple of you, three, four. If you notice, we're married couples. Each of us is a married couple. And we're going to see which is the better married couple today. <laughs> and uh, um, the, probably the best, so the finish line over there. Is the, are the scissors. Whoever gets to those first can cut their, their tags and then take off with the scissors. So, um, no, that would be mean. Leave them there for the next person. Um, and we're going to do this three-legged race. Do you have, there, we're not a gambling church, so, but do you have an idea who's going to win? Somebody said, yep. <laughs> and I think it was on stage here. All right, so we're going to do this. And try to avert injury in the process. All right? All right. So what I need you all to do, are you ready? <laughs> yeah, you are. I can see it in your eyes. What I, what I want you guys to do, and those of you at home, we can't hear you, but just give it a shot anyway. You're going to say, on your mark, get set, and then what's the final word? And that will be our cue. So when you're ready... Oh, wait, 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 wait. We didn't talk. Okay, so actually Christy, one of our pastors, is going to stand up and she's going to cue us with the on your mark, get set thing. Out in, who's calling it? At whatever you want. Ready? 
I say what? You're going to decide who wins? Julie's at the finish line. You'll, you'll get the photo finish, right? All right. We're ready. When you're ready, we're ready. Oh, crap. You're... No, but I felt myself going. Oh, the master of tuck and roll. Oh, those those are thick ones, aren't they? I'm not talking about. I'm talking about the strip, the the things. Turn the mic off. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to hear all of this that's going on up here. It's like when you go to the bathroom and this thing's still on. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah. All right. Who had their bets on, on us? Uh, just a handful. Oh, you guys hate us. No, anyway, where, did you throw the scissors in there? Yeah. Oh, there they are. So let's, no, let's go back over here. Yeah. Thank you guys. You guys were amazing. So... It's actually a lot better than trying to race. So this is the final sermon in our series on love and marriage. And for many of you, this has been a hard one. And you've heard it often stated that marriage is a dance. Let me say that marriage, though that's a beautiful analogy, isn't as much a dance as it is a three-legged race. Because when Adam and Eve were created, they were joint people together. They were one, and they didn't fight for control over each other. In a three-legged race, what do you often see? Huh? Right? You see a struggle. Someone's trying to pull, someone's trying to, somebody else is trying to pull. It's this disjointed, weird race. My ankles hurt. I don't know if your ankle hurt. Does your all's ankles hurt, right? Because I probably put mine too tight, but aside from that, when we're pulling against each other, it's not comfortable. Do you notice that? I mean, if you were to be up here doing the same thing, there were some of you I thought about calling on, I thought... We don't want to risk liability in a broken hip, Christy. So, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Christy, I love you. I'm just teasing. Um, Christy could take me down. So, no, seriously, you guys would have done great. But I had, we didn't have room for four. Just saying. Uh, but when we're doing this, we have to coordinate our efforts together. You know what she said to me before we started? She's like, we didn't talk. And I was like, I know. Because it furthers the illustration, right? Because you need to see that if you don't talk and you don't work together, what happens? We don't know who's doing what and where we're going. Now, I did say the finish line with, you want to cut those off? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, let me, yeah, can you? That's awesome. It is funny. Anywho, but do you catch the imagery here? We went to the weekend to remember this weekend down in Cranberry. And, uh, oh, see how tight I put that? That was so stupid. 
Don't cut my britches. Look at, you're strong. Thank you. Love you. So marriage, more than a dance, and this is probably going to smack in the face of some of your all's theologies, and maybe even some of your interpretations and understanding of Scripture. As I mentioned throughout this whole series, Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, which we're a part of, is a part of the Wesleyan Arminian theological movement and belief. We are we believe in free will of our our being that God has given us a choice to serve Him or not to serve Him. Uh, we don't think that God has preordained some for heaven and some for hell. We believe that all people are desired of by God to come to faith and belief in him. A part of what we also believe that is somewhat nuanced and not a well-accepted uh, thing is women in leadership. And I know many of you come from backgrounds where that is foreign or, quite frankly, depending on your teaching, is unbiblical. We believe it is biblical to have women in leadership and in, on, in board positions. We have women pastors in the Church of God. Oil City Church of God is one of the most amazing women pastors you'll ever meet. Brenda Snedden, I've sat with her on different teams in our state ministries at Emlinton, and she is truly a woman of God. And so when we have this hierarchy in place, with the genders, what tends to happen is a breakdown. And I can explain that to you, not just socially, not just culturally, but I can explain that to you biblically. Because here's the thing, there are two different lines of thought in Christianity, more specifically Protestantism, of where women and men should be. One of them is called complementarianism, the other one's called egalitarianism. We are a part of the egalitarian group, and quite frankly, the dominant perspective in the United States among most evangelical churches is the complementarian view of men and women, more specifically husbands and wives. So what is the complementarian view? Just to give you a basis for our discussion today, which is the capstone and the final sermon of this series. The complementarian view, as simple as I can state it without going into a bunch of theological junk you don't really care about, is that there is an order and a hierarchy between the genders and sexes that male has been given authority over female, that when God created the woman, she was meant to complement Adam, but not to lead Adam or to co-lead with Adam, okay? But we don't actually see that in the Genesis 1 and 2 narratives. You don't. And I will argue that to the point of death. What you see between husband and wife, the two, is that they are co-leaders, equal in relationship in the created story. They were both, according to God, given dominion over the living creatures of the earth. Adam wasn't given the dominion alone. They were both given the dominion. And I know, again, please understand me, hear me out, do not leave just yet. I'm not here just trying to make an argument for feminism. What did I tell you last week? There's a thing called patriarchy and a thing called feminism. Which one is the better solution? Neither. God didn't create either one of those. 
What happened at the fall in Genesis 3, which we looked at last week, is when everything became disjointed and upside down. God didn't say, I'm cursing you guys to be this way. He said, as a result of your sin, this is what's going to happen. What did he say to the woman? Because of what you've done, this is what's going to happen. Do you notice there were no curses in what he said to her? Your child, you will have increased childbearing pains, okay? And your desire, actually is the better translation we read last week, your desire to control your husband, most of our passages say your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. But New Living Translation says your desire to control your, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. What that whole thing is stating is, there will be a power play between the two from here point, from this point forward. See, what God stated in Genesis 3 as a consequence of the disobedience that the woman was going to vie for position, but that the man would rule over her. God wasn't prescribing that. He's like, here, take two of these pills and call me in the morning kind of prescription. He isn't saying that I'm making this so. He's saying this is the result of what just happened. There will be a constant battle between you, and reality is there are differences between the genders and sexes, yes? We believe there are only two at this church, male and female, according to Genesis 1, which is the first sermon in this series. And we believe that, yes, though there are differences, our responsibilities, at least initially before the fall, were mutual together. No lording over the other. The differences, however, are yes, men in general are typically stronger than women. Our frames are built differently. Genetically, we are differently with our chromosomal makeup, XX or XY. Our muscle structure, our hormones are different unless you take supplements to make them different in another way, which is happening. But naturally, the way God put things together, yes, we were different, but different didn't mean one was better than the other or one had more authority than the other. One might be physically stronger than the other, but utilized in the appropriate ways of that physical strength would bring about a mutual shared partnership. So we know from the fall that what resulted was this lording over. And you say, well, Brandon, the New Testament has littered with women need to remain silent in the church. They, they shouldn't take leadership in certain positions. But let me ask you a question. The New Testament, as much as it states that women should submit to men, women shouldn't presume to teach a man, 1 Timothy, um, women should learn from their husbands quietly at home. That's another passage. Does it ever state in the New Testament that a woman can be a prophet? Is in the Old Testament, do we have women prophets? If you know the scripture, you could say yes to that. What's a so is there a difference between a male prophet and a female prophet? Did the female prophets only prophesy to women or to children in the children's ministry? No. As a matter of fact, Josiah, one of the kings that brought revival to the land in the Old Testament, 
actually consulted with Huldah the prophet after he found the law of God buried somewhere in a cabinet. Guess who Huldah's contemporary was? He has a book named after him in our Bible. Jeremiah. Well, why didn't Josiah go to Jeremiah? He was a contemporary of Huldah. He was prophesying. He was a prophet of God at the same time Huldah was. Nobody go to Huldah. That's just one example. Now, all right, well, let's say Paul. Paul's writing in the New Testament. He writes all of his different letters. And does Paul, who states that women should be silent in the church, never should presume to speak, should learn quietly at home, is there ever a time where Paul commends women in leadership? You're like, I don't know. I want to say yes, but I really don't. Yes, he does. As a matter of fact, read the whole book of Romans. He commends deacons who are females. What is a deacon? We don't have a deacon structure in our church. But what is a deacon? You can read 1 Timothy. He gives actually layouts of what a deacon and an overseer and all that is. Well, you say what should be a husband of one wife. But then is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? If in 1 Timothy he's saying that a deacon should be a husband of one wife, then why is he commending a woman deaconess in Romans? Is he contradicting himself? Okay, so there's more to the story. And so when we glibly gloss over Scripture, please understand, I am not as academically astute as some PhDs or THDs out there who have studied, know the, actually can read the language and speak the ancient languages. I will never presume to have that level of academic prowess. But at face value, we expect lay people to read the Bible and through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand it. Am I correct? You don't have to have a PhD, a THD, or even a master in theological studies like I have in order to understand the scripture. Why? Because if you're truly reading it in context across the whole piece of it and not just a verse from here and a verse from there, you see a bigger picture. It's what we call in theology a meta-narrative. You have a narrative that's inside of each of these books, but then you have a meta-narrative. What is a meta-narrative? It is the big picture, okay? 66 books of canonized scripture. We can read Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, which is what we're going to get into today. We're gonna, but we're going to read a small piece of the letter to the church at Ephesus. That is a smaller narrative to a people group called Ephesians, and the Christians specifically in Ephesus. But if I pull myself out from the smaller narrative and I get the bigger picture, guess what I see? I see the lay of the land. What seems to be contradictory in Scripture actually begins to take shape when I get the big picture. So this thing with women, not just in ministry but in leadership, and let's talk about this in the marriages. Why is this pertinent to marriage? The reason this is pertinent to marriage because this is where many relationships break down because neither one is willing to defer to the other in a healthy biblical way because here's I know I'm hearing your arguments right now because I've heard them for over 20 years well you don't know how he treats me 
I don't, and I'm never saying you should stay in an abusive relationship. You will never hear those words from my mouth, and if you step outside of this place today and say, Brandon said we should stay in abusive relationships, that is a blatant lie, a false witness, and that's unbiblical, okay? Secondly, you will never hear me stay. You have to stay in a relationship where this one spouse is constantly being unfaithful to you, sleeping around. There are biblical allowances for divorce. But what is God's design for marriage? So that's what I've been trying to establish this whole series in four weeks, which is very difficult in four weeks' time. But you cannot understand God's perfect design for marriage until you understand his perfect design in the garden, that neither one of those two lorded over each other. There was not hierarchy there, but there also was no anarchy there. Where there is no hierarchical structure, we think in our society today, what is it? It's anarchy. Right? Why is there hierarchy today? I'm willing to contend and to debate with you that the reason there are hierarchical structures within human society, human only, I'm not talking between humans and God. I'm talking about among humans. The reason is because we're selfish, we're sinful, and we're broken. And this is why Paul says to honor the governing authorities that have been put in place. Because of the stubbornness and selfishness of our heart, there are certain concessions that God makes to keep order within society. Why? Because of sin. But if we were truly living the way Christ lived and actually living the way Adam and Eve were supposed to have lived, would there be necessarily any reason to have a president of the United States? See, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, guess what the Israelites did? They started looking where they'd inhabited the land now. They didn't have a king. They had judges, but the judges just interpreted the law. And what was the law? It was the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the first five books of the Bible. They stood in judgment over the people interpreting the law. We would call them the Supreme Court of the land. But there was one king. Who was the king over the nation of Israel? I think it's God. I'm not sure. It was God. But in 1 Samuel 8, the people come to Samuel, who is, also, who is a prophet and a judge, and he's also carrying priestly duties to some degree. What, what do they say to him? Hey, we've been looking around at the other nations. I mean, we've finally gotten our footing in the land. And you know the nations around our borders? They all have kings. And their kings have palaces. And they have armies. And they have all of this different stuff. And we want that. What does sin nature have us do? This is pertinent to our study on marriage today. Sin nature has us look across the fence and see grass that looks like it's greener, doesn't it? Okay, am I losing you guys today? I promise I will resolve this as best I can. They said, we're seeing these other nations. They have kings. We want them too. How come, how come? My brother gets a cell phone and I don't. 
my neighbor has a Tesla, I want one too. Maybe. I mean, they're cool. And Samuel's peeved off. He's like, God, they want this, but I think it's stupid. And he's like, well, it's not the greatest. But keep in mind, Samuel, God's telling Samuel, they're not rejecting you. (laughs) They're rejecting me and my kingship. What does sin nature drive us to do? To seek for that which we think is better, but actually is worse. This is the enemy's greatest tool, and he does it in our marriages. The love in our marriage is dying. I don't, I don't feel love anymore. It's, love is, I can't tell you this enough. Love is not a feeling or an emotion. It is an action. Love is accentuated by feelings and emotions. But if all you're willing to put your money into is feelings and emotions, they're fickle because you're sinful. <laughs> That's hard to hear. But my emotions are erratic at times. In one, in one moment, I can be so angry over something that's happened or something I've read in the news, and in the next moment, I can be laughing because something was hilarious. I can wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Ask Sarah Lee, she'll tell you. And I will be grumpy, and I'm, and I'm like, why are, you, why are you grumpy? I don't know! You ever said that? I don't know, I'm just ugh, mad for some reason. I'm feeling mad, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling frustrated, and sometimes there's a reason for those things, and other times there's not. That's why we don't put 100% stock in feeling and emotions. And marriages that put stock in merely feelings and emotions crumble because they're focused on the wrong things. So I believe in a God who doesn't contradict himself. I believe in a God who makes concessions toward our stubborn hearts in order to draw us close to him by giving us kings of a human human descent. As we mentioned last week, well, why did God give divorce? And we remember Jesus in Matthew 19, the religious leaders are coming, and Moses said we can give a, a, a certificate of divorce. What do you say? And where does he go? Do you remember What verse of scripture does he quote? (laughs) Pre-fall, Genesis 1 and 2. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That was God's design. Divorce was never a part of God's design. You're asking me about divorce. Divorce is a human construction. Well, Moses said we could do it. Well, God allowed Moses to do it because of the hardness of your stubborn hearts. He made a concession, but it wasn't a part of his design. Well, which do you want? Again, you will never hear me advocating for you staying in a marriage that is abusive, unfaithful. There are certain limits to that. But to get out for any reason under the the sun, if it's that easy... This is what Jesus has a problem with. So what do we do? So where do we go? 
Women in leadership, okay, I maybe concede that there are instances where women can be in a position of leadership and headship and those kind of things, but that doesn't mean in the marriage. Well, okay, let's look today, Ephesians 5. We're going to start with verse 21. But before we get to that, let's go to Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28, because I want you to know Paul is very consistent in his teachings, but there's also context to historical situations. So what does he say in Galatians 3, 26 and 28? And you're saying, Brandon, you're proof texting. You're just pulling a couple of verses out to prove your point. Read the whole thing. I always challenge you, don't just read two verses. Read the whole book of Galatians. Read the whole book of Ephesians today when you get home. Promise me you'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What does he say in Galatians 3, 26 through 28? He's having this conversation with the church at Galatia. They are a frustrating church, filled with problems. They've allowed false teachings into the church. And he's honing in on this point of the unity of Christ. And listen to what he says. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And now... That you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Now, there's a lot of cultural context there, because who were the chosen people before Christ came onto the scene? The Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. And so now, who are the Galatians? Believe it or not, they are like Germanic tribes. They're really white people. They're part of these... Uh, these uh, barbarian-type tribes, typically that's where we, we find out that, that a lot of this, this uh, missionary stuff into starting into Europe didn't just start in, in um, Italy and go up from there. It started in these Galatian churches and moved up through the Germanic tribes, believe it or not. And so he's writing to Gentiles, telling them about the Jewish people who they would have been familiar with because Jewish people had been scattered throughout the earth. There were synagogues and local communities, even pagan places like this. And so they might have had some understanding of the Jewish people and knowing that their father was Abraham who, in, who started this whole group and race of people called the Jewish people. And so what he's saying is you are a part of that now through your faith and belief in Jesus Christ. In Christ, as a matter of fact, we're all one. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter what color's on your skin, whether you're male or female, what position in society you hold, when you come to Christ, the field is leveled. And he goes on in Ephesians to a whole different church. He writes a different letter. In Ephesians 5, chapter, 20, or chapter 5, verse 21, he says, And further submit to one another at a reverence for Christ. Okay, that seems like an impartial sentence. Those of you who are grammar specialists, English teachers, and all that, why did you start with verse 21? Because it's pertinent and actually belongs to this section, but this section belongs in the previous section. Because the previous section in Ephesians 5, if you go back from verse 21, he's talking about the church, the body of Christ. And he's talking about unity within the body of Christ and how we should worship together and all of this stuff. And then he goes on to say, oh, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Period. Some scholars put this in the previous section and start the next section as a separate section, but it's not meant to be that way. 
Because if you look at verse 22, it's another impartial statement because it's referring to something that came before it. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So he's now describing what it means to submit. Who is to submit? Wives in this context, but verse 21 tells us what? Oh, we don't like that verse. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is head of his wife as wife, uh, uh, for the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. Ah, see there's hierarchy there. Not if you read further. You're going to find it's quite a bit different. Well, wait, Christ is the head. Yes, we're going to talk about what headship actually means. Because in this context, and in almost every other context, he uses a different word for head here. Head, in this Greek terminology, is kafale. Headship, that means authority, is a whole different Greek word. So let's look at this. For wives, it means to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. You can see how this has potentially been abused within the religious churches of Christianity through the years. I've heard of atrocious stories. You, are you making yourself available to your husband sexually in every way? Well, it, he wouldn't go on to pornography if you would at least be more open to him. Have you heard these? I have. And it's devastatingly false teaching that has corrupted the body of Christ. You know, the enemy will come, come in any which way he can to manipulate and twist the word of God. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any of the tree of the garden, Eve? Or he didn't call her Eve at that point. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden? What was the woman's response? Well, no. God said we shouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if we eat it, we'll die. Oh, that's not really true. So now, we're taking a verse of Scripture, and if we pull it out of its context, and we look at it as how it's going to benefit me, then we're looking at it wrongly. But that's how we do, right? We go to Scripture to see how it's going to benefit us. Oftentimes we do. And we open ourselves to the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. What is he? Oh, okay. Now, let's go back. Verse 21. And further submit to one another at a reverence for Christ. Now jump down to 25. For husbands. What does that mean? Okay. He's saying you're, you're to submit to your wife too. And here's how you do that. You submit to your wife this way. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. What is the greatest act of submission? What is the greatest act of love, Jesus tells us in the Gospels? That one would lay down his life for his friends. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. To make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Do you look at making your wife holy and clean? Are you looking to lord over her to get from her what you desire? 
He did this to present herself, to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. I love my own body. Look at this. I get more and more of it every time I sit down to a table to eat, right? This is showing love to myself because I'm not denying myself food. I'm wearing decent clothes. Guys, we love our own bodies. We love what brings us certain satisfactions and makes us feel good. So love your wives that way. Love her and bring her satisfaction, not by the ways that you want to be satisfied, but by the ways that she needs and desires to be satisfied. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. If I'm loving my wife, guess what? It's reflecting back as love towards self. It's not because I'm trying to, husbands and wives do this. We are great at the art of manipulation. We like to, we will serve one another if we think we're going to get something in return. But if we start to notice that we're not getting back what we're putting in, what's our, what's our human sinful nature response? Come on, come on. If we're giving more than we're receiving, we start to get frustrated, resentful, and angry. Why is that? Because our mindset truly isn't in the place of service, it's in the place of receiving. We studied this passage this morning in the class that I'm teaching, Philippians chapter 2. And if you read that, what does Paul say that our attitudes should be like as believers in Christ. Your attitude should be the same of that as Christ Jesus, that though he was God, he didn't see equality with God as something to cling to, meaning he was God, but he didn't walk around, hey, I'm God, Follow, bow down, bow down to me. What do we see in the very nature of Jesus? We see humility at every turn in the story. He's going and meeting with lepers who have a contagious disease that were put on the outskirts of town in leper colonies because they weren't allowed to come into the regular populace. He's now going to them. God is going to them. Husbands, love your Christ, love your Christ. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and clean. Wives, submit. How much easier, women, is it to submit to your husbands and respect them when they're loving you the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? But see, you can't go into it either. Like, well, I will only submit and I will only respect if. Because that's the sin nature talking. And you might even try, okay, fine, I'll do it for a while. Does that mean you have to submit yourself to abuse? No. Again, I can't say this enough because this has been so abused in churches to, to foment and continue dysfunction that is destructive within relationships. It's a mutual submission. Women, wives specifically, are to submit and to respect. But husbands, you can make that very hard. 
And wives, you can make it hard for a husband to love you the way Christ loved the church too. Let's be honest. Because neither one of us are willing to concede because we're, we're in this three-legged race. And no, I'm going to go. It's my, no, you need to be following me, woman. And we're bru- bruising her ankle. We're dragging her along. Or the wife is, is, is struggling for control over her husband. Remember, your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And there's this constant terminal fight that's happening. And we're yanking against each other and all the while hurting each other, trying to get from one another what we want instead of giving what they need. Why do marriages fall apart? It's because the ideal for marriage is not accomplish a bowl apart from Christ. This is why Paul gives an addendum. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the whole chapter is on marriage. And he says, what, about, what if my spouse isn't a believer in Christ? What do we do? Well, the Christian spouse is to stay with the non-Christian spouse so much as it is uh, their husband or wife wants to stay with them. I watched my mom do this. Why am I so passionate about women in ministry? Because like Timothy, in 2 Timothy, the first chapter, who does Paul commend for Timothy's faith? (laughs) His grandmother and his mom. I had a Lois and a Eunice in my life. I still have a Eunice. They are the mighty women of faith in my life. I would not, and I promise you this, I would not be on this stage or any other stage proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ were it not for them. Their authority to speak truth into my life through each stage of my life left an indelible imprint on my life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when I, see, when I see this competition happening in any relationship, vying to get one leg up over the other or to put somebody else in their place, I know that is a tool of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And I will be unapologetic about that. I've seen it destroy relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship, marriage after marriage. I told you my mom was married three times, my biological father was married four times, and my stepfather was married twice. And though I have never been divorced, and Sarah Lee has never been divorced, we have been married, and we are the only ones that have been married to each other in this relationship. I... I know what the effects of divorce and broken relationships look like. And I still, do you know that those ripple effects still exist? I'm 47 today. Those ripple effects still exist today. Now, they do not define me, but they have affected me. They are a part of my story. Just as your upbringing and different experiences are a part of your story. But you don't have to be defined by those things. 
So if there is divorce in your life, as bad as it might be or have been and still has the ripple effects in your life of being, you don't have to be defined by that. But you also should not be perpetuating ongoing ripple effects by your own behavior either. Are you living a life that is sold out to Christ in obedience to his word? Or have you compromised in your relationships because you've justified certain behaviors as being good when they're actually sinful? It's a fine line, but it's a very clear line. Jesus doesn't bring confusion. He brings clarity. Who is the one that is the author of confusion? Somebody tell me. Satan, the enemy, who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. If you were confused about what is clear, you go to the Word. The Word defines what is clear in black and white terms with regards to most of the big issues in life. Marriage is one of those big issues. Why? Because the first, it is the first ordained ceremony where God joined the first man and the first woman together to reflect oneness, to reflect his image. Verse 31, as scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Do you see what Paul goes back to? What does Paul go back to for the basis of mutual submission and talking about husbands and wives? Where does he go to? Just as Jesus did in Matthew 19 in the discussion on divorce, Paul goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. It's a great mystery, he says. It's a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one as well. So again, I say to each man, must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I'm not going to get to the points today. And that's going to make some of you angry. See me later, I'll fill in your blanks. Maybe. <laughs> there needs to be restoration in some of your relationships. And some of your relationships are, I'll be honest, are quite frankly beyond re restoration. Not in Jesus. I will, and this is where I get a little pushback. I say there's always hope. In, and I've been told I shouldn't say that because I'm giving false hope. Yes and no. I will concede that you can only live at peace with another person as much as it depends on you. Okay? And that's biblical too. Paul tells us that in Romans. Live at peace with one another as much as it depends on you. Not every relationship can be restored by human means, but only by the divine connection. And that's only pending the person, the other person is willing to be at peace with you. Divorce is ugly. It was never a part of God's original design. And in order to keep from that happening, he institutes this oneness principle when the two come together. And it's not just sexual, it's emotional, it's, it, it's psychological, it's spiritual. It is more than just the sexual union, though that's a part of it. 
The problem is when we start to vie for control, guess what it does? There's a pulling against, and this oneness starts to pull apart like this. And some of you might be hanging on like this, barely, because you've pulled and pulled and pulled and resented and not forgiven, and you've demanded your own way, you've sought your own way. And God wants to do a restoration in you. He wants to deliver you from the baggage, the burdens, and the bondage of sin and death. And you cannot fix your spouse. Your spouse cannot fix you. But you could submit your life to Christ completely. That's the beginning point. You want to fix your marriage? Fix your relationship to Christ. Husbands and wives. Men and women. And do it God's way and not yours. Easier said than done, I get it. 23 years of marriage has not been perfect. It's been difficult. And as I mentioned last week, there have been moments we've wanted to throw in the towel and say, enough. We went to the, it's actually still going on today, I'm going to call our worship team forward. We just got back this morning from the weekend to remember a family life event down in Cranberry. And uh, I'm going to be honest with you, we talked about this. Both of us didn't want to go. I hate marriage stuff. Not because I hate marriage, just because it's just so, ugh. you know, I, I get it. And the part of the reason is, is I'm not, I'm not seen it modeled in my life well. And I'm not modeled it well either. Because in some cases, I haven't really known how to. And I sincerely can tell you, and we still have our own struggles right now. And had some of that revealed, and it's embarrassing. It's, a, it's like pulling back of the fig leaf, and you're kind of like feeling the shame. That's what vulnerability and transparency does, but it's necessary in order to get to a place of healing and restoration in your relationship before it goes over the cliff. We came back better for it. It's not a one-stop shop. We're not perfectly fixed, but it's a step. And if you need to make that step today, maybe not in your marriage or in your relationship, but maybe, maybe you have other outstanding relationships that are not marital-type relationships that are broken. Guess what? God desires to see healing and restoration in that as much as it depends on you to live at peace with them. Are you willing? And if you're willing, what are you willing to do to step into that arena of reconciliation? You see, the reason Paul says this is a mystery, it's kind of like Christ and the church. This headship is not a controllership. It's just think about this. The head is a part of the body, is it not? What happens when you cut the head off? Thank you. One of you knows that. I've never seen any headless body except for the headless horseman, and that's a fictitious story, right? I've never seen a headless body running around. I mean, in horror stories yet, but I've just never seen it. You see, the reality is when that's severed, the whole body dies. If, if the husband is the head like Christ is the head, guess what happens when that's severed? Both die. 
It's not that the head is controlling, even though we know. So they didn't have the modern technology to know about the brain and the nervous system and how all that functions and works. They just knew you cut the head off in Jesus' day, what happens to the body? It dies. And so he's making an analogy not on scientific medical terms, but on physical terms. The body can't exist without the head. The marriage can't exist if the two aren't willing to be joined together and moving in tandem with one another. Just as the body of Christ is dead without Christ. Father, I know you're wanting, desiring, and willing to do a restoration process. Maybe it's not for marriages, specifically in certain people's lives here. Maybe it's just in the individual where you're wanting them to be healed and whole because they've been broken because of bad relationships in the past that are of no consequence of their own, but God, they've suffered as a victim. Or maybe, just maybe, there are those in here who have been vying for authority and power, and instead of realizing it's about submitting one to another, they've had the veil pulled back and they see they've been doing it wrong. I know that you are a God who heals and restores and reconciles. And God, that's what Jesus came to do. And, and God, though, though we make a mess of things, we know Christ came to fix what was broken, to restore what was lost, to seek that which was lost. Help us to not fight against that anymore. To quit fighting for our own way to give up our lives for you. Truly, what does it profit us to gain the whole world and lose our soul? What does it profit us to always be right in an argument but lose our marriage or to lose our relationships? Oh God, help us to fight the right battles against the true enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Help us to put on the full armor of God in this place today, not just as the body of Christ, but as children of God so that we can truly fight the good fight of faith against what is evil and wrong in this world, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our lives, in our workplaces. God, help us to see the way you see, to see the big picture, the meta-narrative, and truly what you came to fix. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.